0: Welcome to another episode on my abuse series. Today I have Kimberly McFerrin on the podcast and she is going to be sharing a ton of stuff from her childhood and a rape at 15 and how that played out in her adult life and where she's at now and what she's doing I'm going to go ahead now actually and give the trigger warning today. We're going to be talking about physical mental and emotional abuse So if this is not in line with something that you are wanting to be a part of or listen to or you're ready to take a listen to Please stop the podcast now. So welcome and here we go Hello, everyone. This is Meredith with a Y, and I am your host, Meredith Willett. Today, we are going to go deep, changing lives, and I am giving you the keys to the castle. So, Kimberly, thank you so much for being here today and being your vulnerable self and sharing your experience with my listeners today. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having
1: me. I appreciate having the opportunity to share and having a safe space to be able to share my story and hopefully allow other people to hear it and
0: maybe make positive change in someone else's life. Absolutely. And I was actually just recorded on your podcast, The Limitless Pregnancy, which you put out every single week. So my episode with you will be coming out and we actually talked mostly about parenting, but you talk about all different things on your amazing podcast so it's it's everything from pregnancy to postpartum to doula to pregnancy it's all of that so if anyone's interested in you know connecting with you on the limitless pregnancy that is also available to the listeners but today we're going to dive into basically your life i mean we're going all the way back to your parents and your childhood. So you, 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 you're a podcaster. You, you got this, you go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess we will, I guess we'll go all the way back to the very beginning, which actually is before my existence, right? My parents both came from different kinds of abusive environments, But they both came from abusive environments. And I do think that to their credit, they did the best that they could when they decided to become parents. And I I think that if we all have enough self-awareness, we tend to do that, right? We tend to attempt to make it better for the next generation than it was for us. So, you know, I I think they did the best they could. I think they were missing some really important tools in, in just environmental management. So they ended up getting divorced when I was five years old and your parents, your parents, my got parents. Divorced. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my parents got divorced when I was five and all of my memories from five and younger are all of them fighting. Mm. with the exception of one, there was one Christmas morning where I had the flu and I have a very vivid memory of having the flu and like being sick on the couch and not opening gifts. But (laughs) aside from that, all of my memories of five and younger are of screaming matches between my parents, dishes being thrown, shit breaking, you know, just like absolute chaos. And that was my experience. So it was sort of you know, when you think about setting the foundation for someone's expectations of what life and relationships are meant to look like, I would say from the beginning, it was probably not great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Can you, can you pause there for a second? Because I don't think that a lot of parents that are, you know, maybe children of abuse or parents that are in that very volatile, violent relationship playing out in front of their children. And, and who knows if those folks are listening to this podcast right now. Right. But Maybe they are, maybe they're intrigued and interested in this, the subject of abuse, but can you take a second and kind of talk about being the small human and your world is exploding in front of you and the two people that are supposed to love you and protect you are violent, are angry. What does that feel like? I mean, I hate to be like all psychodynamic or whatever the word is here, but I think that people need to understand what that's like for a kid. Yeah. Let's, no, let's dive into it. Well, I have to tell you in the moment, it
1: was my normal. So it felt like what a family was because <laughs> from my experience, that's what a family was. My grandparents were pretty active in our lives. And so I remember this visceral feeling of, of a very big difference between the home environment and the environment at my grandparents' house. When we would go there for the weekend or for an overnight or for whatever, it always felt, I, I didn't have the tools or the, the verbiage to acknowledge it at the time, but it always felt safe in a way that home did not feel. And that lasted through into my adulthood. It was always that way. And I guess once, you know, once they were no longer in that house and my grandfather passed on and my grandmother was in, you know, assisted living, even then my grandmother still felt like home. She was, she was home based for me a hundred percent of the time. And so my childhood home felt just—it—it it was uneasy. It was always uneasy. I never felt like uh, the, Like I—I never—it never felt peaceful. It never felt welcoming. It never felt emotionally safe. But like I said, at that age, I didn't have the ability to put those words to it. It just—I knew—I just knew that something didn't feel like I could ever let my guard down.
0: Were you ever allowed to have pain? Were you ever allowed to be hurt? Were you ever, Were you? I mean, were, was there space for that kind of energy? Were you or did you feel like the adult? Because these folks didn't know what the hell they were doing. A lot of times when kids have abuse, they become they, they call it the little adult because they look at their parents are like, you two have no clue what you're doing. So clearly I'm the only one that does. Like, did that play out for you anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there was lots of space for
1: physical pain. If I fell down and scraped my knee, I remember at one point, before the divorce, I remember I, I slammed my fingers closed in the car door. Like there was room for yeah, (laughs) I did that too. (laughs) So there was room for that kind of pain. That kind of pain was very well taken care of. It was nurtured. It was, it was handled emotional pain, emotional struggle. There was not room for it. There were not tools for it. There was not nurturing around it. It was just kind of non-existent. We also didn't talk about feelings in my family. We didn't talk about, you know, during the divorce, after the divorce, watching my parents at each other's throats constantly, Processing the divorce as a five year old and having to deal with separate households and the animosity and the angst and the tension and the (laughs) words, you know, underneath someone's breath as we're going from one household to the other. Like all of that was just, it was like it happened, but we didn't talk about it. So, yeah, the little adult syndrome kicked in very early. I think both for my brother and myself, we both just kind of decided that we had to fly under the radar, cause as little commotion as possible, and we really, especially like in our very young childhood, we really stuck together because that was what felt safest. And then as we got into our teens and sort of sort of discovering who we are, we went in very different directions. But you know, there was just not room for us to be nurtured children. and that lasted, you know, for our entire lives. I had to, I had to process that in my twenties and in my thirties, having to understand, like having to try to figure out why I'm always trying to be responsible for everyone else's feelings. I'm always trying to right, which then plays out in all these relationships that I've been in. And that's the catalyst is that I never, we, we never got to have our process. We were always just trying to keep the environment peaceful.
0: It's literally breathtaking how damaging all of this stuff is to humans and we see we see the recipe (laughs) add add adult plus child plus you know no safety plus abuse plus trauma and you'll have a people pleasing fixer emotionally responsible you know neurotic empath you know like it's the 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 recipe is there. And yet we've still, as as a society, do absolutely nothing to help families through this divorce process. And, you know, I just did an entire series. We married rich talking about how my ex and all four of us parents raised these kids together through our divorce. And God, what, what, what you and I would not have given to have maybe all of the parents at a graduation party or a baby shower or your wedding and having never to have to manage adults' emotions or manage where they sit or who they, quote, have to be around, what kind of shit parents put on their kids to have, to like, hey, I brought you into this world, I got married, and now I'm getting a divorce. And now you have to manage all of my emotions. You have to manage the rest of your life monumental experiences of graduation and getting married, having children, birthday parties for your kids, et cetera. Now you have to now manage all of that so that I'm still comfortable in the shit that I have put you in. Holy shit, what are we doing to people, guys? I mean, what is, I mean, it's like I'm talking to myself with you sitting here talking. I mean, it's it's crazy. And then we wonder why we get into abusive relationships when all of our life has been nothing but abuse. I remember my mom said to me, she's like, why do you date these assholes? It's just like, because I was trained well. Yeah, to that's it. exactly right. Because I got I, a really good example of how it should go, right? <laughs> I, I know how to do this. I'm very yeah. good at this. I'm very good at abuse. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. And so that played out for you pretty profoundly when you were a teen, you said.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, So I was... You know, what's so interesting for the longest time I had a very hard time using the word rape, I would say sexual assault. And that was kind of where I would leave it because it's ambiguous, right? It doesn't have to indicate any one specific thing. It just tells you that someone did something inappropriate. Yeah. But to be very clear, when I was 15, I was raped by a, a guy that I was dating. I, you know, <laughs> there's so many, there are so many indicators when you look back, but of course, like, I think a number of things were happening. My parents were in their own shit and also trying to be hands-off. It was a very tumultuous time in my home life. My mom had primary custody. We saw my dad every other weekend. My dad had remarried. My mom had remarried and divorced and her emotional stability was really all over the place. And so there was a lot of inconsistency between the households. And of course that caused a lot of pushback for myself and my brother as teens You know, with Frontal lobe development going on and having all these inconsistencies in our lives. And so we were pushing back in a lot of places. And so I think my parents made the choice to be very hands-off in our in our social lives. And what that ended up meaning, unfortunately, was that a 15-year-old, I started dating someone who was 19. Mm. And Which you know is basically
0: illegal right now. <laughs>
1: it's that's exactly right. Us, it's illegal. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I was like just the most naive, the most rose colored glasses, kind of 15 year old, like hadn't had a thought about having sex. Hadn't had a thought about even like significant foreplay. It was like, just not on my radar. And, you know, one night we're in my bedroom, the doors closed, my mom's gone. And he's, you know, it's, he starts taking my clothes off. I, I, make it a point to vocalize that I'm uncomfortable. He says, do you want to do this? I say, no, he disregards it. That's that. And then he calls to apologize and just wants to just meet with me. He, we don't have to like go anywhere. He'll just come to my house and just talk to me on my porch. And unfortunately, because I felt responsible for his feelings in that situation, I said, okay, you can come over and talk to me on my porch. And that's what happened. He came over, he sat down, he said, he said, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And so that sort of perpetuated the cycle that I already existed in, which was that my feelings didn't matter because other people were dealing with hard stuff or, you know, in his situation, I don't think it was that difficult of a situation for him, but he felt the need to apologize, to absolve himself. And and I said, okay, yeah, I forgive you because that's just so, so much of what I was accustomed to was Everyone else is experiencing their experience and it doesn't matter how it affects me. I'm just going to be quiet and be small and say, don't worry about it. And just try to be invisible. And I feel like that really catapulted me into, it just further solidified the dynamic where I was meant to worry about other people's feelings, not worry about myself, do as much as I could to keep the peace which of course meant not having any peace for myself because then I became attracted to this dynamic, this relationship dynamic, this emotional dynamic where a person who wanted someone who was willing to be small and silent was attractive to me. And there was one, there was one extenuating circumstance. My high school sweetheart was the, was the not that pattern Uh, and because it felt so foreign to me, I massively mishandled that relationship. And there were other things, you know, we were in high school. I wanted to go off and do things in my life. I moved to New York. He never wanted to leave. He wanted to live on a farm and that's like what he wanted. You know, like we had very different views of the world and and goals in life. So it was not meant to be regardless, but you know, I look back at the pattern of all the abusive relationships that I've been in. And aside from my husband, he was the one that was not abusive. And it's funny because those two relationships are the two relationships that in the moment I was always like, Oh, this feels weird. Like, I don't know if I should be in this relationship because it was calm, because it was peaceful, because I was taken care of because they kept their side of the street clean, you know, but it was so foreign to me that I, I didn't, repeat that pattern again until I met my husband. And even then, when I first met my husband, I was like, I don't think I can date him. This feels wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, And we hear that with women all the time. I like the bad boy. This guy's too nice. He, you know, whatever. You hear that. And what you're actually saying is, is I'm really broken still from being abused and anything but abuse feels wrong. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, it
1: feels foreign. It feels it feel foreign. it's not what you're used to. And it's not, it's not what I've been mentally groomed to handle, right? So like mentally, emotionally, I'm not stimulated.
0: I'm not yeah. stimulated by you in any way, shape, or form. Right. You're not challenging all of my inner spidey senses. Uh, I'm not using all of my faculties. I'm not reading the room. I don't have to be hyper-vigilant. So all of this feels very anticlimactic. Holy shit. Right, right. I don't have to sleep with one eye open. I'm not
1: constantly on my toes wondering what's going to happen next. Is the other shoe going to drop? You know, and that, and, and when you're used to living in that heightened of an experience all day, every day for years and years and years, when you interact with someone who's not like that, it's like, oh,
0: what's wrong with them? <laughs> they don't have just- passion. Like they're they're, they're not passionate. They're just very complacent. I actually just heard this gal. I wish I would have written it down. I need to write it down and talk about it. But I guess there was a guy who wrote a book 20, 30 years ago about the the alpha male. And he had done this study about the alpha male. I don't know if you've heard about this recently. And then 20, 30 years later, recently, he said he wanted that book completely taken off the shelf because he had re- done the the science behind it and studied it and so when he originally had studied the alpha male what it was is he had studied wolves and he had found these wolves and he found the alpha male in this wolf pack 30 20 years later he studied it again and realized there's no such thing as an alpha male because in his first study the alpha male was in captivity with limited resources, and they had no freedoms. And so the alpha male only comes out in captivity with limited resources. But in the wild, a real man has tons of resources. They are not captive. They are able to expand and grow. And so the alpha male does not exist except for in captivity with limited resources. So as women, when we see, right. I mean, is it mind blowing? What a metaphor though. I'm like, (laughs) right. And so when you look and you find an alpha male that you need to be this beta female or this weak person recognize that this alpha male that you are actually attracted to is a trapped limited resource being who, 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 who feels that there's not enough to go around and that they need to take from you and that they need to have this, create this explosive experience with you because there's not enough for everybody. There's not enough love. There's not enough, whatever. And so they create this kind of, I see this, like this, like mini world between themselves and the person that they're abusing or that they need to alpha over, over, you know, but, and and when you were talking about, I want to jump back really quick to when you talked about him calling you and saying, can I come over and apologize? And I think this is why not to shrink you, but I think that this is why you have had had, had such a hard time saying the word rape, because when you accepted his apology and him to come over, tell me if I'm wrong, you negated it all. Absolutely. In a way. Like yeah. there was like, there was a whitewashing. There was a there was a, I, I, I okayed it. I, I stamped the, not approval, but I, I allowed it in some way by accepting his apology. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and so it's easier to say, you know, I was assaulted because if you say I was raped and then Holy shit, I forgave them and Holy shit, I was a part of it. And Holy shit, I was a part of negating it. Then it starts to get weird. But I think that as when we, when we go through any of this and all of this, We need to give ourselves so much grace and so much pass and so much forgiveness and so much kindness and softness because, I mean, I was date raped and went to breakfast in a huge group with, and he was there the next morning. I mean, I said to one, one of the gals that was at the breakfast table with me, he was at another table. I'm like, yeah, that went south. And she's like, what happened? I was like, I said, no. And he's literally sitting six feet from me. There's a part of us as women that look at that situation and go, I fucking allowed that. Mm -hmm. Well, and especially now, you know, I don't. I
1: I had to get over the the victim blaming mentality because I 100% lived in it. I 100% lived in it for years. You know, I didn't even tell my parents until I was I was in my 20s and I was home. My nephew had just been born and I was home with my, my boyfriend at the time, who was a different kind of abuser. who was very much a psychological abuser, but he, you know, one of the best things that he ever did for me was on the trip home. He was like, you need to tell your parents, your parents deserve to know what happened. And he wasn't wrong. The, he was pushy about it, which was not the right approach, but he was not wrong because a lot of things happened. There was a lot of fallout that came after, after being a rape victim that, that I was never able to share, which means I was never never able to get it off my chest. But that also meant that there was this huge divide between myself and my parents because Mm. something happened, something significant happened that I didn't give them the opportunity to help with. I didn't give them the opportunity to support me. I didn't give them the opportunity to anything, right? And as my parents who are meant to provide,
0: right? I mean, know me so that they can support
1: me, so that they can parent me. Yeah,
0: it's. I mean, it's huge when we take when we take part of our story away. And I mean, I don't really feel I still don't feel that safe to share too, too much with a lot of people because you're giving them access to use that information against you, <laughs> you know, so you have to be very mindful. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, a, a huge portion of your story, if it's not given, then they don't know. I mean, it's, it's so true.
1: Well, and what's so interesting about that too, is the people that I chose to tell versus not tell, like some of my closest friends still have no idea, like any piece of that story, but every single person that I've dated, I have told because to me, it was like this shameful thing that I had to disclose. Right. Like it's like telling someone you have an STI, right. It's like, okay, well, Just, you know, there's this thing that that happens to me. So like, I hope that that's okay. I hope we can still date. I hope that by divulging that information, you don't decide that you don't want to date me, you know, which is like so fucked up, even that that was the mentality that I lived in. But it was for years. It was like, I, so many of my friends had no idea, but I told every single person that I was in a committed relationship with.
0: Do you think that was a preemptive strike? You know how like you go like, well, I know I'm fat. So you can't tell me I'm fat. Cause I'm already, I already know I'm fat. So you can't own me. So is there like some sort of preemptive strike? Do you think in, in telling that information to the guys because they were guys you were dating, like just so you know, I know that I'm going to put this out there so you can never own me. You could never have the upper hand. I already have the upper hand. I already know. Who yeah, I maybe, am. Yeah, right? yeah, maybe, maybe for sure. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Well, and it was
1: so interesting that there was so much shame that I felt around it that I had to, that I had to present it to someone to give them an out. Right. Like Mm. now that things are getting serious or now that we're becoming exclusive, there's this thing about me that you should probably know. So that like that, that may or may not influence your decision to date me exclusively. Right. Which is, it was, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to look back because like, was it me looking for someone else to take the out? Was it me? Was it me actually in that moment saying, I'm not interested in going further with this relationship, but I can't just say that. So I want you to be the impetus. I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting to think
0: about. Yeah. Or there's so many different pieces, parts to all of this. Yeah. I mean, the dynamics behind kind of owning it, kind of pushing it out there, kind of saying, just so you know, this is here but not with the girls because then maybe they would blame. I mean, there's just, you know, you don't tell your friends, but then you tell them, is it a bonding experience? Is it, I trust you. And so I'm going to tell you, or I want to bond with you over this. Like there's so many different dynamics, but you know, that's the thing is as we move forward and don't heal, then we get to get in more and more bad relationships. That's right. (laughs) That's right. And that's exactly what I
1: did. That's exactly what I did. I went on to I moved to New York, I went to college, I met a guy after college, we dated for a year and a half, two years, maybe. Mm-hmm. And he, he, in a lot of ways was very supportive and, and helped me with healing in a, in a number of ways. But then at the same time, in other ways, he was incredibly emotionally manipulative, dishonest, deceitful. And what's so funny is I, the pattern that I recognize in the way that I pick people, Right. Nearly every abusive relationship that I've been in, with the exception of the most recent one, they've all come back to apologize. Mm. Even, even like some random guy that I dated in high school, like my sophomore year in high school, reached out to me on Facebook, I don't know, five years ago and was like, I just want you to know that I'm so sorry. I was such a shitty person. And I'm
0: like, Okay. Thank you. At least he owns it. I mean, hey, I'll give you credit. I've never, no one's ever called me to apologize. (laughs) Well, and what I, but what I think is so
1: interesting, Meredith, is that at least the one that I dated after college, the guy that, that, you know, came home with me and said, you have to tell your parents you were raped, his motivation for apologizing was absolvement. He wanted me to say, it's okay. You're not a terrible person. And it's not my place to determine whether any human is a terrible person, right? It's, I'm not, I'm not the judger of all humans, but. He did enough really awful things that I now that I have done the work now that I am emotionally grounded (laughs) and, you know, have sort of peeled away all of those layers of self-defense and deflection and all of the bullshit that I wore for years and years and years. He wanted, I can recognize now that what he wanted was for me to just tell him that he, it was, it was all ego. It was purely ego. He wanted me to go, don't worry about it. You're a great guy. It's fine. You're a great guy. And ironically, with that boyfriend, he reemerged a couple different times in my life. And even as recently as, oh, I'm going to be terrible with the math. But as recently as like a few years before I met my husband, I was like, sure, I'll entertain giving you another shot. Wow. Because that cycle just repeated for me. An yeah. apology to me, um, an apology meant everything was okay. An yep. apology erased what happened
0: because Literally. it goes all the
1: way back to the rape when I was 15. And even beyond that, it goes all the way back to some really shitty things that happened in my childhood to where my parents would apologize. And then I was just meant to, an apology meant we had to forget about it. We weren't going to talk about it. We weren't going to talk about the emotional experience anyone was having. Something happened, an apology was given. So you take that apology, you move on and you don't don't sit on it. You know, don't let it fester. Don't, don't be emotionally. And that was the thing is the gaslighting, right. That goes all the way back to my childhood, the gaslighting of like, if I'm having an emotional experience and I want to talk about it, then I'm being emotionally manipulative.
0: Yeah. And you're fine. And that it's carried okay. all the way through. It's okay. You're okay. Yeah. Everything's okay. Yeah. 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 Don't you know blow it out of proportion. Oh, I yeah. was melodramatic. Yeah. That was mine. I was melodramatic. I was being sensitive. Yeah. All that. And, and, you know, it's and and that's the thing. Like, I really want to like, especially with this conversation about families and. Like we were active participants in a lot of this. You know what I mean? Like there's only so much as a child we can do, but moving forward. And we're not, we're not saying, oh, our parents are horrible or this is why. This has nothing to do with blaming. This has nothing to do with shaming. This has nothing to do with making excuses. This is talking about these subjects. The reason I'm doing this series is because if this is happening with you and you're sitting there running around your family as a grown adult woman, or, you know, you feel responsible for everyone's emotions in your, you know, you know, your parents and your kids and your brothers and sisters. And you're seeing these patterns that, that we're talking about here. I want you to be aware of the fact that these are patterns. They're not excuses, right? There's there's stuff that's going to happen that if you don't heal these things, you're going to make bad choices like Kimberly and myself and continue the abuse, continue the cycle, continue people pleasing, continue being, you know, overly empaths with narcissists where you're going to continue it in one way, shape or form. Cause I am still, I'm still in it. I still refuse to make my parents uncomfortable. I refuse. Oh, yeah. I am yeah. 48 years old and I do not bring them any discomfort at all, I would not call them and tell them that they've hurt me, that they've, ups- it does me no, first of all, it does me no good. All okay. Right? Let's just be clear on, <laughs> yeah. on that. To be clear. The, yeah. To be very clear. Nothing. No one's listening. But, but I, I still, besides the fact that it's, it's pointless. I, I, I still have a very hard time putting myself in, in front of other people. I have a very difficult time saying you hurt me or you've done this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have not found the key and I might never find the key. I might never find the F off key. I might never find the you've done this for 40 years and I don't really give a shit anymore. If you're hurt, I I might never find that key. Some people may never find it. And, and that maybe that's know thyself, you know, be true or whatever the saying is. But if you're listening to this and you're hearing this conversation, know that this is not a blame game. This is not an excuse game. This is not a poor us game. This is not that conversation. This is a be aware. This is yeah, a, this it, is a real yeah, because awareness thing. is what changes everything. Everything. I mean, when they came out with the word gaslighting, I was like, oh, thank you for to go along with me thinking that I'm crazy and I want to walk around with a tape recorder. You know what I mean? Like, yes, <laughs> what? this is a real thing. There's a definition yeah. for this. I'm in yeah. heaven. So I, I, that's what I want. I want to be so clear that this is a conversation so that other people can benefit from your story, not use it as a crutch, right? Right. That's and exactly right. So, yeah. And so, and, and the fact that the fact that, you knew better and then dude reaches out to you and you still feel that pull, (laughs) right? It's like, I feel obligated to give that person
1: another chance. Fuck (gasps) that. That's not what's best for my life or my choices, but I feel an obligation to someone that I have no business feeling obligated to
0: none. And we keep doing it. Yeah. We keep doing it. I mean, probably once a month, I'll feel a pull to reach back out to someone that's not in my life. They're, they're in my life, you know, by way of relationship, family relationship, but I'll feel that pull to reach out and make it right and make it better. Even though it's, I didn't, I'm not the one that screwed it up, but there's that longing to be loved. There's that longing to fix it. There's that longing to make it right, but it's completely unhealthy. It's completely unhealthy. Yeah. But I think the more that we point these things out in ourselves, it's almost like calling ourselves to task, right? It's almost mm-hmm. like calling ourselves out and going, no, you're not going to do that to yourself again. Because when we do talk about yeah. it, then we are called to task. We are called to do better. And that's all we can do, right? That's, that's the healing process.
1: Yeah. And what's funny is when I look back at all of the abusive relationships that I've been in which have been the majority of my serious relationships, I have had a separation with every one of those partners and then given them a second chance, every single one of them, every single one of them. How wild is that?
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think that's being the the divorce? Like my daughter calls it pick me energy where you're like, oh, he likes me again. So I'm going to fix it or I'm going to or see he really does like me, even though it was broken. Now this time he likes me. I don't there's so many there's so many playing out. I think sometimes being having a parent's divorce and, you know, we visit our dad's. I think that it, it, does, it does. I don't know how you don't be broken with that. Wanting yeah. to be liked, wanting to be number one. I went through so much of that.
1: Well, I think that, you know, unfortunately, not that I can place it all on one experience, but, you know, when my parents divorced, neither of them had the tools. And unfortunately, that manifested very differently in each of them. It made my dad very quiet and very non-responsive slash non-reactive to most things. And it made my mom sort of claw at the walls. And so what that looked like for her was wanting to, because she was so hurt by the divorce and she was so hurt by my dad, she wanted to feel connected to someone. And so for her, that meant she wanted to feel connected to her kids. And what that meant for each of us, unfortunately, is that she wanted to manipulate information to make us feel close to her and not close to our dad. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she took advantage of opportunities to, I mean, I remember her saying to me when I was a kid that my dad never wanted a daughter and that my dad will never love me the way that my dad loves my brother. It took me years and I confronted my dad about it. As an adult, when I was going through therapy, my, my therapist was like, Well, have you ever asked your dad if that's true? And I was like, No. And so I, I sat down with my dad and my stepmom and I was like, Can you tell me more about this? My stepmom started crying and she was like, If anything, you're the favorite. You know, like <laughs> it was just very
0: overcompensating. <laughs> right?
1: Right? <laughs> right. Exactly right. But my entire childhood experience was seen through that lens that yep. my dad didn't love me as much as my brother. And so nothing I was going to do was ever going to be good enough. And so that was my perception. That was my experience. That was my reality as a child growing up in the world, even though that was not the reality, that was my reality. And so growing up under that mindset and then on top of it, you know, my mom struggled a lot with depression and, you know, potentially other cognitive issues that have not been diagnosed or maybe have, and I don't know, but she when she, when we were, when we were linked, when things were good, things were great. And when things were not good, things were awful. And if, if I, if I vocalize that, if I chose to vocalize any kind of discomfort, any kind of anything, call attention to the fact that, you know, every dish in the, in the sink is dirty. And how am I supposed to make dinner? That was met with such extreme response all of the time. But then it, the whiplash, the emotional whiplash would be the next day. It would be like, hi, honey, how are you? I'm going to make you breakfast. Let me do X, Y, and Z. But we never acknowledged the conversations, right? We never acknowledged the disagreements. We never acknowledged the turmoil. It was just covered up. It was swept under the rug and then covered up with overcompensation in the next interaction. And so I think that's what manifested into my relationships was like, oh, he wants he wants to give us another chance. That means that things are better now. Things are better because we're not in conflict and he's happy again. So I should be happy again. So let's give this another chance because that means that we're happy, even though like
0: I'm not happy, but I just never acknowledge that because I just want to feel better. I just want to feel better. Anything to feel better, anything to feel better, anything to make it go away. I don't care what it is. I mean, it's literally a recipe for domestic violence and a domestic abuse because that's literally how it plays itself out is explosive, dramatic. Okay. The next day it's fine. It's better. You're just relieved that it's fine and better. Anything you get to find and better. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's exactly right. And so then that manifested then into the next relationship that I was in when I was living in New York and that relationship was physically abusive and it was like a light switch, like six months in one night, everything went fucking sideways. We were out at a bar, we were having martinis which, you know, are almost always a recipe for disaster. (laughs) But the underlying issue too, was that he was an alcoholic, which I didn't Mm. know at the time. And that was the first night where I was like, something's wrong. Like this dude is having, I don't remember, but it was an insane amount of martinis. He might've had like seven martinis.
0: Oh my, that's like a half a bottle of vodka.
1: And I remember, and he was falling down drunk in the bar, like falling off the bar stool. The bar stool was falling over. He was literally on the floor in the bar. And I just remember going, okay, I need to leave. And I need to leave not with him. Yeah. And I went outside to get a cab, and he got in the cab with me. And instead of getting the fuck out of the cab, I just stayed in the cab. Of course. And yeah. And on the way home, do. shit escalated in the cab. I was texting my stepmom about something she had texted me. And so I was responding to her text. And he got mad that I was on my phone and he was physically reaching for my phone, trying to take it from me and was like, Who are you texting? Never before seen a jealous ounce out of this person prior to this night. So I was like, What are you freaking out of it? I'm texting my stepmom, like, right. what's happening? We got out of the cab, shit escalated. He pushed me down on the ground. He's screaming at me. He's has his hand on my throat. And in that moment, I was like, yeah, in that moment, I was like, I need to go anywhere else. And he basically dragged me through the front door of the building. Uh, And in New York, a lot of the buildings are like front door lobby, and then another door into the main area. Right. So we're between the the front door and the second door. And he's, you know, he's keeps putting his hand on my throat. He's throwing me to the ground. He picks me by my hair and pushes me through the second door, the second set of doors and then pushes me onto the ground and is screaming at me. He's like, get the fuck upstairs, get inside. And I remember having this moment of like, if I get, if I manage to end up in that apartment, he's going to kill me. Yeah. And at that point from where he had used my head to open the the door, I had a gash in my head. Blood running down my face, blood pouring down, like all of my clothes were stained in blood. I, he stumbled because he was drunk. He stumbled. I took the opportunity. I ran out. I got out of the building as fast as I fucking could. People were driving by. It was this husband and wife. I wish I knew their names so that I could reach out to them and say thank you for saving my life. Literally, literally. Just driving by, they see me run into the street, covered in blood, screaming, crying, freaking the fuck out. She gets out of the passenger side. She grabs me, pulls me in the car, closes the door, locks the door. They're like, what happened? I'm like crying and you know, hyperventilating and convulsing. And he runs out and runs down the street and the, they call the cops. The cops come, the ambulance comes. I'm getting stitched up in the back of the ambulance. The cops come to me with a driver's license and they say, is this the guy? And I say, yes, it is. They take him in. They take him, he's in jail overnight and then gets released in the morning. I go to stay at a friend's house because I just am like, don't I don't want to be anywhere where he knows where I am. I don't want to be right. Like, I don't want to be. I have stitches in my head. They like the the paramedics like send me with an ice pack and some gauze. And just like riding the subway in the middle of the night, half of me covered in blood with an ice pack and gauze in my hands, just like in complete shock. Like I can't imagine what anyone who came across me on the street or in the subway or in the station. I can't imagine what they thought. Right. I go to stay at a friend's house. Two days later, I take a pregnancy test and I'm pregnant, which the, the amount of other shit that goes into this too. Like I have endometriosis. I was told I would never be able to have kids. I, at the time had a gynecologist that was pushing me to have a hysterectomy. So it was just like all of this, everything came to a head. And that morning I had had a meeting with someone at the DA's office about pressing charges and I got that positive pregnancy test and I was like mother fuck what do I do now? And because we know the kind of cycle that Kimberly lives in at this point, right? Kimberly feels it's her responsibility to make things right. So I tell the DA, I need to hold off on pressing charges for now. I'll reach back out to you. She didn't even respond to me. I'm sure she was like, "I I've seen this a million times. I don't, <laughs> right? Like, I can't be responsible for you." Right? Here we go again. Here <laughs> right? we go again. Yeah, another
0: woman. Yep. Yep. And so I reached out to him. Then I'm the one reaching out. I reached out to him. I was like, "We need to talk about something." I said, don't "I'm pregnant." Wait, wait, one second. Yeah. When yeah. you're yeah, yeah. reaching out to say I'm pregnant, I just want you to step there for a second. <sighs> yeah. How much energy in you in that moment? Was fix it. It can be fixed. This is going to fix it. This is going to make it better. This is, you know, the energy I'm talking about. Was there any of that Trying to drop a bomb? Were you trying to make it get back together? Did you think what what was the energy inside of that phone call? The energy.
1: So, so even better than that, I had already, the restraining order was already in place. There was no contact order. He could not be within 300 feet of me, et cetera. So I actually had to reach out to his best friend and tell her that I needed to talk to him and have her arrange us meeting. So I had to tell her first, but in that moment, there was no fix it. There was not a part of me that wanted to get back together with him. I didn't want to be anywhere near him. I didn't want to be involved in him. The problem was, was that I felt like I was responsible to let him know that there was a child in existence that he had created, which like, if you think about the psychology behind it, right? Like if this is the kind of person he is, he has no business being involved in that child's life, right? Like he's not safe to be a parent, but I felt responsible for his experience. I felt like he deserved to know. I felt like it's that, it's that thing that we're always told as women, right? Like men deserve to have the right to X, Y, and Z. And that's, I, I truly think that was the extent of it was like, yeah. because he was the man, he deserved the right to whatever. And I, I knew I didn't want to have an abortion. And I also knew I did not want to keep the babies. So I basically said, here's what's going to happen. I am pregnant. I'm going to give the baby up for adoption. I feel like you have the right to know. And I'm sure you can imagine how that went.
0: That went really well. I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, It was great. (laughs) Great (laughs) fun conversation. It's really great. Yeah. And it was a lot of groveling and crying and begging literally on his knees on the floor with his hands clasped in front of his face, begging me, begging for forgiveness. And I was like, I don't care what you have to say. I just feel like it's your right to know that this child exists and it's going to be put up for adoption. And then it was months, months of back and forth, months of let me do it. Let me, let me, let me, let me, I'll do whatever I'll prove to you, you know, I'll X, Y, and Z. And I, I think we got to about month seven of the pregnancy. And I was like, I'm not, I am not having a child with you. I am not, I am not, I am not. And at one point when he, I guess, realized that I was serious, he said, okay, sign over a hundred percent of the parental rights to me and I'll raise the baby by myself. And suddenly I went, Oh shit. I cannot in good conscience as a person who cares about other people, allow this child to grow up in that environment. Yeah. Cannot. So then I'm put back in the position of making life decisions, accommodating someone else's emotional experience. Right. Because he was steadfast. He was not going to walk away from this baby. Now, mind you, Meredith, we were living paycheck to paycheck, living in one of the most expensive cities in the world. We had no financial plan. We had no emotional plan. We had not, no structure in place to be responsible parents, which I knew, which I recognize, which is why I said, I have no business bringing this baby into the world and, and taking responsibility for it. I also don't feel I do not feel like I'm in a place where I can have an abortion. So my solution is be responsible to this life and be responsible to this life by letting someone else read it responsibly. But that, that all changed when he
0: is going to take it,
1: when he's going to take it and assume full responsibility for it. And I yeah. was like, I just, there's no way I can do this. And so what resulted is us having a child together and. Co-parenting, living under the same roof for a number of years. Wow. More abuse happened. There was one night we were driving. It was late. We went to a poker night. He drank too much. The baby was asleep in the backseat. He got mad at me for who fucking knows what. I don't know. I sneezed the wrong way. You right. never know. Right. And we were I'm driving down the freeway and he's yelling at me and literally reaches for the steering wheel to try to like veer the car off of the road with the baby in the back seat. And yeah. I was like, okay. Shortly after that, I basically was like, we can't live under the same roof anymore. And then it was the same cycle, literally on his knees, like melodramatic, like shit you see in a movie on his knees, begging, pleading, crying. Please don't do this to me. I love you so much. Please don't do this to me. I love you so much. Blah blah. blah. And me being like, I don't at that point, she was spent. I was like, I do not care. I don't care how you feel. I don't care that this hurts you. This is not my problem. And then we still lived under the same roof for almost another full year. Wow. And the, the straw that broke the camel's back was Christmas morning. Christmas morning, our daughter was now three years old, four years old. Christmas morning, for whatever reason, he wants to get into it. He's looking for a fight. He wants to get into a fight. He starts screaming. He starts, you know, elevating the situation. And he just kind of like steps to me, you know, like mm-hmm. does the physical intimidation. But mm. you can see like he had the shit in grit on his face where he was like, look, I'm not putting my hands on you. <laughs> I was like. Wow. We're done. You're done. Christmas yeah. morning completely ruined for her. By the way, completely ruined for her. Of course, like, awful. And then that was it. I moved out. We separated households. I found out later that he had been telling all of his family, his friends, his everyone that we had still been together that entire time, and that I just walked out on him one day. So like, you know, yeah. toxic people are toxic people, right? And they manipulate the environments around them so that the people around them have the perception that, that they want them to have as opposed to the reality. Yeah. Right. So I was always the bad guy, which honestly I did not care about. I was like, right. let me be the bad guy. I don't care. I'm not going to remain in an abusive environment with you. So yeah. if I have to be the bad guy and you have to be the innocent victim, that's sooner or later, the truth's going to come out sooner. Cause he went, he was strategic. He went to my friend oh, and yes. did the sob story and did the, can you believe you did X, Y, and Z, trying to turn all my friends against me, trying to oh, make yeah. it so that I was isolated and alone, so that I had nowhere to turn. Yep. And and so from that I went into my next abusive relationship, which was emotionally abusive. <laughs> And that was, that was it. That's, I was seeing a therapist. I was actually seeing two different therapists. I was seeing a a man and a woman. I was seeing each of them once a week. And I was just hashing through all of the shit from decades, right? Decades and decades of shit that I was hashing through. And I was going, why am I doing this? Why am I allowing this? What is this pattern? Why am I not being responsible in these situations? Why do I feel too responsible for others in these situations? Like, what am I doing? And now, and now I'm a parent. And now I have all of these cycles that I don't want to continue. And I have all of these behaviors that I have allowed for myself that I do not want her to perpetuate. I need help. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm getting into my next relationship that is emotionally, I mean, the most gaslighting I've ever experienced in all of my abusive relationships. Just severe. Luckily, through therapy, I finally was able to be like, I'm making so much progress, but something still doesn't feel right. What doesn't feel right? And then, you know, it was just like this light bulb moment one day where I was like, oh, it's this relationship. Yeah. Like I'm still just perpetuating right. in different forms. I'm allowing the same cycle to manifest. Yeah. And it's wild how long it took me. And thank God for therapy. I've got to tell you, I, you know, like I had so much awareness and I feel like I'm a fairly emotional, intelligent person when it comes to things happening outside of me. Right. Right. But having to flip all of the focus inward, which is horribly uncomfortable, yeah, is life changing. I yeah. mean, it it exponentially changed me for the better and changed my experience, changed my daughter's experience, changed everything for the better. But it was really it was really difficult work to do yeah. because then I had to look at all of the abusive relationships that were around me, which meant my parents, which meant other family members, which meant relationships that I'd chosen, which meant my abusive boss at the job that I had. And why was I digging in my heels so hard with her and establishing such significant boundaries with her, but I wasn't doing it with any of my personal relationships. Like what, where's the disconnect, you know? And that was really hard to sort through. And that took, I mean, a lot of emotional labor, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, and I feel like I'm still sorting through it. I feel like there are still moments where I look back in the past and I go, "Oh shit, that's also connected to this." Like it's all connected. It's all connected. There's not one experience that didn't come from another bad experience. It's like because I allowed it.
0: I, yeah, and and I tell people all the time I do a <laughs> emotional release work with like trapped emotions and heart walls, and the the idea behind it is that once you have a trapped emotion, once you have like an energetic living experience inside of you, that it acts like a magnet and keeps bringing more abandonment more victimization, more low self-esteem, like more, whatever the negative trapped emotion to you by way of experiences or persons or whatever it is. And so we just keep until we heal, we just keep building building up the crap and building up the crap and building up the crap. And you know, I think that we're at a point, I mean, with social media and podcasts and, you know, uh, the internet, we're finding information and healing and ways out and groups and so on and so forth so much faster. It's yeah. like, it's it's available to us. Like I just did a, pod- a recording before you and it was talking about how like gaslighting is like a term we've only been hearing for the last few years. Like like, right. Wouldn't you, what, what would you have given to understand gaslighting oh in God. real time and go, oh, wait, you just made me doubt doubt my inner knowing that's gaslighting. OK, so th- something's happening negative here. Right. I would have given my life's blood to be able to understand that that was a thing that was happening to me that could be pinpointed that then I could recognize was abuse and run. Yeah. But because yeah. it didn't. Oh, exist, my God. Yes. Right. Because it didn't exist because there weren't words for it. I just thought I was crazy. I just thought, I don't even know what I thought. I just thought that I was whatever. And so as we're moving, it's like this, this, it's just energy that's going down the hill so fast and so furious. And there's so much more available to us for healing. I do feel that the more we talk about it, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And the more that like, you're, like I'm watching you talk about your own life and you're like, hey, wait a minute. Wow. That was just, I just heard that come out of my own mouth. Like literally as we do talk about it, even amongst friends, even amongst groups or therapists or hearing it or listening to, we get a little bit here and there that's healing in that. And I think that, that we're, we're coming to a, a precipice of healing if yeah. we're open to it. You know we can't keep doing this this cycle, where we do this to our kids. We can't we can't keep creating broken humans with bad divorces and I mean when you were talking about your divorce uh, with your parent your parents' divorce I'm like how do they not have parenting classes How is it not like you're going to be fined if you you know, manipulate your children. How, or if you send your ex a, a horrible text or email, how is this still acceptable right. in modern society that we put these children through these horrific divorces? And it's just like, oh well, it is what it is, right? I mean, how are we not intervening in the schools and, and getting kids help because all we're doing is prepackaging broken adults and broken Uh parents and broken grandparents and broken wives and husbands and all these broken humans. And then we wonder why we're, you know, (laughs) fighting with each other at school board meetings and losing our minds at Victoria's Secrets because someone looked at us (laughs) wrong. You know, like we have so many broken buttons, but at the same time, if I were to meet you in the midst of that second relationship where the gaslighting was as high as it was, right? So you've been through your parents, you've been through a rape, you've been through a physical abuse relationship, you've escaped basically with your life and your daughter. Now you're in this gaslighting. If I see you and look at you wrong and you cold clock me, you know, in the middle of the target, and I know your story and, you know, I'm like going, I get it. I'd punch me too. If I cut in front of you, like the fact that we're not all killing each other, <laughs> yeah. is kind of a miracle <laughs> when you think about it, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of breathtaking that we are all surviving. You know what I mean? It, and then now let's add COVID on top of it amongst everything else and abuse and addiction. And we wonder why everybody's addicted to Oxy. It's like, Jesus, cause we're trying to check out like this. Right. It, not easy, you know, and we
1: can't handle it anymore.
0: Yeah. You literally can't handle it anymore. And then thank God guys like my husband and your husband come along. And I mean, I don't think that I was even remotely healed when I met my current husband for myself. Thank God, God just probably sent him and knew I was never going to be okay. Like it just, I was never going <laughs> to fix it. It was just a disaster <laughs> waiting to happen. So I've, I've been thank God healing with him by way of him, by way of his grace and his space that he gives me. But were you in a space of healing prior to meeting your current? I mean, yes and no, you know,
1: I I was, I had made so much progress, but it's funny because like I said earlier, I met my, I, I actually met my husband two years before we started dating and we went on our first date and I, I made plans after with my best friend, I had to have an out. Our fr- I think we were having dinner at seven and I made, I made arrangements for drinks with my best friend at nine. I was like, I am not staying. I am not. Cause you know, I had gotten to know him enough over the two years that I knew that he was just really nice. And he was just like really genuine and really kind. And I was like, Ooh, I don't trust that. Like he's gotta be a serial killer, right? <laughs> like I just decided that there was something so wrong with him because he was just an authentic and genuine and kind person. So we went out to dinner. It was lovely. It was amazing. The time flew. We had great conversation. We enjoyed each other's company. Our chemistry was off the charts. It was just like all of the boxes were checked. And I left. I was like, sorry, I got to go. I have drinks with my friend. I left. He walked me to the train. He kissed me on the forehead. He like didn't even go in for a kiss. He just like kissed me on the forehead and let me go. And I was like, what the fuck? I remember getting to drinks with my girlfriend and being like, I don't know what just happened. Like it was, I was so put off by it. I was so put off by it that I... I literally was like, there is something so wrong with him. I can't possibly get to know him better to find out what it is. Right. Like I just was so on edge because of all of the other people that I had been with and everything about him felt so foreign that I thought that that was the indicator that something was wrong. Right. Whereas actually the fact that everything felt foreign meant that it was different than all the other choices that I had made before, but I just didn't have the awareness to recognize that. And I remember talking to my therapist about it a couple of weeks in because you know, we were still seeing each other a little bit, like once a week we were seeing each other and it was just like really nice and really fun. And, you know, she was asking me like how dating was going. Cause at that time I was, you know, Bumble was brand new. And so I was just like very active. I was very active in the dating life. It was like, if I had a night to myself, if I didn't have my daughter, I was making plans with someone. Right. So she was like, how's dating going? How are you feeling about it? And I told her about him and you know, I was just like talking through all of the things. And she was like, I don't understand what's wrong with any of this. And I was like, it's something's got to be wrong, Lori. Something's wrong. The and, other she was like,
0: and that's another that's another actual abuse thing is waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, that's a that's an actual I don't even know the words. Tra- trauma response is always waiting. If there's something good, right, something bad is definitely coming. Right. Yeah, and not and it, we cannot accept good. We right. cannot accept that things are just good. Yeah.
1: And that's even what she said to me. She was like laughing, not laughing at me, laughing right. with me. Right. I was laughing. She was laughing with me. And she was like, no. What if you, yeah. She was like, what if you just see what happens next week. And then right. next week you see what happens the next week. And what if you just like allow yourself to get to know this person without having to decide it means anything. Yeah. Because I was very much like, I'm not committing to a relationship. I'm going to date everyone in New York. I'm going to just like live my single life and not. And and like enjoy going out to dinner with people, because that was the thing from the toxic relationship that I had come from, the the relationship with the severe gaslighting. It was so miserable day in and day out. All I wanted was to just go out to dinner with a stranger and enjoy their company. That's all I wanted was just to have a nice meal and a nice conversation with no strings attached and walk away not having to feel anything.
0: Right. And and so that was my goal. Transaction, no vulnerability. You can't hurt me because I'm not even in it. I don't even, I don't even have a toe in there's nothing in. (laughs) Right. And just enjoying, like genuinely
1: enjoying someone else's presence, which is not a thing I did in that relationship. We did not enjoy one another's presence. It was miserable. Yeah. And so, you know, we, (laughs) so I kept having all these very positive experiences with my husband that were just nice. They were just nice and they were positive and there was like nothing to them. And at one point, A couple months in, he called me sort of in passing. He called me his girlfriend, like very casually, nonchalantly. And I, I was like, it was like, I couldn't (laughs) breathe. It was like someone just like sucked all of the oxygen out of my body. And I froze. It was like, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't want the commitment. And I went to my therapist and I was like, I have to cut it off. Like, this is terrible. And she was like, why do you have to cut it off? He's nice to you. He's you enjoy his presence. And he's he thinks enough of you that he wants to commit to you. So like if that makes you uncomfortable, have a conversation about it. But you don't have to just like shut him down because he enjoys you enough to want to commit to you. It's like,
0: No, but 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 I do because right. anything that is committed turns into a complete disaster. So I am just right. keeping it no disaster. That's right. And I
1: literally would say to my friends, he's too nice. I would say, I said it over and over again. He's too nice. Poor guy. He's, too, he's too young. He's too naive. He's too fresh. He's too this. He's too that. Right. Like all of the things that we decide Need. are inherently bad, right? <laughs> right. Because they're not toxic. Like right. his behaviors are non-toxic. I can't really be around that. You know, like it's just so crazy in hindsight, but thank right. God for my therapist. And thank God for my friends that were like, who ca- what if he is just a booty call? Like, just let it be that who cares? Like, if that's what you want, that's okay too. just, you know, if, if you don't want to be his girlfriend, just say, I don't want to be your girlfriend, but I want to keep having fun. And that's probably also going to be okay. And you know, it took weeks more before we had a conversation about it. But I think that was the, I mean, I remember the struggle that I lived in for years with all of the toxic relationships that I was in years of struggle, daily, daily struggle and horrible, just like waking up and, and knowing that it was going to be another day of fight of confrontation of heightened, you know, just living on cortisol, like cortisol just pumping through my body at all times. And here's this person that does not present any of that. And I, could not it took me so long to feel okay with only having positive experiences with a person yep i mean years even into we we started dating we were exclusive we moved we left the country together we lived in indonesia together and even then there were times where i was like but why aren't we fighting
0: <laughs> yeah i mean literally and i tell women all the time like on tiktok and you know they'll message me and i'm like there is a whole life waiting for you There's a whole good life waiting for you, but you can't get there from here. Yeah. You have to end this, go through it, fix it all, and then experience. You can't get there. You can't have a happy ending to a shitty story. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Because I was always the fixer.
1: I'm going to, he's upset about this. I'm going to fix it so that we can have a happy ending. And you know, another thing, when I look back to that most recent abusive relationship that I had before my husband, there was a time where I was just moving into my new apartment and we were painting the kitchen together. And he, he told me that he had gone to see a psychic and the psychic had told him that, oh, I see that you're in a happy relationship and, and you'll be living together before you know it. And it was, and I remember like feeling the blood drain from my face. And I remember like all of the alarms going off in my head and be like, no, 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 no. And he recognized it. And he was like, and he, and he got defensive and he took that as Me not loving him when, in fact, like we were very early in our relationship, not very early, but we were early enough in our relationship. And things were already there were already indicators that things were not healthy in our relationship to the Mm -hmm. point that, like, I was not there was no there was no way that I was going to live with this man. But also it was not brought to me as a conversation. Right. Like, I don't know if he was if he was using the story as bait to see what I would do. I don't know if it was one of those situations where he was like, well, if he's manipulative, then probably (laughs) exactly right. Exactly right. (laughs) Because everything was a manipulation for him to get the experience that he was looking for. Yep. And I just remember, I remember that oh shit moment versus the oh shit moment with my husband and they are like not even remotely on the same planet, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't, it took me so long to recognize that because an oh shit moment just felt like an oh shit moment to me. And, and it took so much work, so much therapy, so much self-reflection to peel back the layers and go, oh That felt terrible because I knew that this man was toxic and there's no way that I was ever going to have a future with him, which in reality, in that moment, that was a really strong indicator for me that I needed to no longer move forward with the relationship. Right. But then I still let it go on for like another year and we broke up and he, you know, and we broke up and we got back together because that was the, that was the cycle.
0: That's the cycle.
1: That was the cycle. But then that, oh shit moment with my husband, now that I can reflect back on it and pick apart all the things that I was feeling in that moment was just like, I was so afraid to make any kind of progress with him, not even just to commit to him, but to have any kind of forward movement or any kind of upward trajectory, because it felt so foreign to me that it was like, I didn't even have an idea in my mind that relationships could be that way. Yeah probably in the same way that people who have never experienced abuse react to relationships that feel abusive, right? Where they're like, no, 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 this can't be real. That's how I felt about a healthy relationship. Yeah. And I was so put off by it for so long. And I finally came to him and I was like, this scares the shit out of me. Like, I don't know what to tell you other than like, I don't know what I'm doing. And this feels terrifying. And he was like, okay, you know, it's just like, of course, great. Yeah. He was like, well, then we'll roll with it. Do you feel comfortable? You know, he was just like, of course,
0: (laughs) of course. Right. I love it though. So much but but and that's what I hope that listeners are getting out of this conversation with you and I right here is like there is another side to it. These are red flags. Your gut is talking to you. Your spidey senses are correct. Like, yeah. there is a way out. There are tools to, you know, not have a, a miserable life. Like, so many people, especially if you did grow up in an abusive household, you just think that life is basically supposed to suck. I have yeah. so many people that comment on my TikTok. They're like, I never signed up for this. I don't know who you're kidding. Life is hell. I hate being here. And I read that and my heart just breaks because I know what they're talking about. I know yeah. what they're saying when they're saying, I hate being here. And my my call to everyone of you out there listening is, is you don't have to. You don't have to hate being here. You know, you've been through it. I've been through it but there is another life waiting for you but you have to be no one's coming to save you the yeah. abusive relationship that you're in is not going to fix itself the abusive partner that you have is not going to fix it for you you have to be the one to leave to find your value to find your self-worth to figure out the tools that you need to be healthy and recognize that you're a people-pleasing fixer responsible for everyone's behavior empath sensitive you know whatever and go, I'm not doing this anymore. And I need to start recognize when I'm doing it. I need to be aware of when it's happening. I need to be aware of these patterns of abuse that I feel very, very comfortable and warm and cozy with, even though they're horrible. Yeah. I, I know how to do this. And I tell people, you know how to be an abusive relationship. You're good at it. You're wired for it. Your brain neurotransmitters are ready for it. Your serotonin levels love all of the abuse and the drama and the whatever and and the passion of anger and the passion of getting back together. And all of that crap lives in you and needs to be undone so that you can find because it's not that happily ever after exists, but it does. It is out there. Right. And it's not, I mean, our marriage has not
1: been perfect. We right. have not been without struggles. We nearly, very nearly broke up right before we got married. You know, mm-hmm. there's, Ditto. there's, <laughs> Ditto. Right? Ditto. there's like relationships. There's shit when it comes to relationships and it's not perfect, but people have to have the right tools. People have to have the right fundamental foundation To be able to process the hard stuff with you in a healthy way. And that's what I was missing from all of the relationships before. There was not a healthy foundation to be able to process in a way that was not accusatory, in a way that was not deflective. You know, we have the saying that. I think probably many therapists use this analogy, but like, it's about keeping your side of the street clean, right? If mm-hmm. my side of the street is clean and his side of the street is clean, then we can share this beautiful street in the middle. And that street is where our marriage exists. That street yeah. is where our family life exists. That street is where our children get to grow up. That street is where our bills get paid, right? But if we don't keep our sides of the street clean, then shit's fucked up in the street. And then what do we do? We don't have a street.
0: We don't have it. Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. Well, I so appreciate you being here. I mean, we could just like go on and on. Our stories are ridiculously in yeah. line with each other and thank God we're at where we're at. But, you know, and, and, and to the people out there that are being abused or in an abusive relationship on the receiver end. Okay. So like what you and I are talking about to the people that are on the other side of that, the abuser, you can also get out of this. You can also get the tools to have a healthy relationship You can also clear your pain and your trauma so that you can be a better partner. It's not only the abused that needs help. It's the abuser that can get help so that they can be because guess what? When you're an abuser, you're not happy, right? You, you, that means you're not happy. That means that you need certain things that are broken to feel good as well. And so you should also be getting help and you can get help, you know, and I think that that's super important that we recognize that we need to, we need to help all of humanity, not just the right. one side of it, and that it is possible to help all of humanity so that we can move forward here in a better way, but I appreciate you being here and sharing your story and going through all of it. We have so, I mean, I got to have you back when we're talking about the pregnancy, cause I'm going to be doing a whole parenting series and the doula training. I mean, we have other stuff that we need to talk about, but I am yeah. glad that you're here and you're sharing and you're so vulnerable with everybody. And I really appreciate that.
1: Thanks, Meredith. Thanks for having me. And I, and I think that what the point that you were just trying to make about the fact that the abusers also have the ability to make positive changes that that's, that's what perpetuates the cycle, right? No, no abusive relationship that I was in was isolated, right? Those people also came from abusive childhoods, abusive experiences and perpetuated their own cycles. And so they have just as much trauma as we do. And it,
0: it just manifests differently, just manifests differently. But we just all need help. <laughs> yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, they say you know, as an as an abused person, you become the another abused person or the abuser. Right. You go in one or two categories. And so it's just like we're all just like lining up like toy soldiers, taking over one role and then another role. And there's got to be a point here, you know. And that's my goal of this whole series is to end and find maybe we can end a little tiny portion of the world's cycle and, and say, you know what, this isn't working anymore. I mean, that's, that's my hope too. That's, and that's why I'm so happy to share
1: my story with you, because honestly, the victim shaming and the victim blaming that I experienced from the beginning, from being raped at 15 to being in these toxic relationships, it was perpetuated even by family members being like, well, you chose to be in that relationship. Ugh, and it's like, well, right. first of all, fuck you. You have no idea. <laughs> but second of all, that's, <laughs> why, it didn't le- <laughs> right. why didn't you leave? Why didn't you just leave? But honestly, it took social media and it took the internet for me to hear other people go, no, 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 this is not like, yes, people blame you as the victim, but you don't have to stand for it. And that, I mean, it took that for me to go, oh, all this is not my fault. Yes. I have subconsciously, indirectly, however you want to look at it, put myself in these situations, but not by choice, not by conscious choice, but also yes however i got here i had a hand in it but that doesn't make it my fault that these people have been awful to me and it honestly took social media and youtube and the exposure to other people in other parts of the world on the internet to be able to have that awakening so i'm i will always share my story because of that and yeah. i hope that that more people just start to recognize that like it is not normal, but it is common. My story, your story, unfortunately, they're common, but we Very have common. to, we, we have to take charge of our own lives because no one else is going to do it for us. There's that no abuser that we're in a
0: relationship with, they're not going to try to fix our life for us. Nope. No one's coming. No one's yeah. coming. No one's coming. We have to do this ourselves. Yeah. But well, all your good stuff, the Limitless Pregnancy podcast is going to be in the show notes. So you guys can go ahead and click on that. And then where can everyone find you on Instagram and social media and all that stuff? Is it the Limitless Pregnancy still? Yeah. The limitless Pregnancy is my podcast handle. My personal Instagram is just my name,
1: Kimberly McFerrin. And my website is also Kimberly And that's more like, I'm not super active on Instagram, (laughs) but I try to be a little bit, I'm responsive, but I'm not super active. You know, like I'm always open. My inbox is always open. My DMs are always open. I don't post a lot,
0: but I'm always there. So that's usually the best place to find me is either through Instagram or through my website. Awesome. So if someone wants to reach out to you, even if they're just going to share a story, that's where they would do that. But yeah, all of that can be found in the show notes. So take a look at all that. And I appreciate you being here and I will see you on the next podcast where I'm going to suck you in to share some more stuff about pregnancy and doula and all that other good stuff. So thanks so much for being here. I can't wait. Thanks so much, Meredith. All right. Thanks, son. Thanks for listening. If you would like to connect on a more personal level, head over to MeredithWillits.com or on Instagram at meredithwithay for behind the scene footage and outtakes. Please subscribe and come back each week for more Meredith with a Y. Thanks again for listening. Cheers.